folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It is Friday, July 9, 2010, and that means it's a call-in show. It's also a day with a, with a uh, contest and an MSB special, so we're going to knock the housekeeping out quick. I'll try to go fast for you, but what I won't rush through is our sponsors because, hey... They do a lot to make sure the show's here for you every day by supporting the show financially. So please consider supporting them financially. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth Tactical has the tactical stuff, the things that you need for the tactical part of your life. Really cool stuff like Magpaul magazines, uh, Maxpedition bags, and everything else like that in that vein. And, you know, I just got a great email from a, a listener who basically said, hey, you know, I just ordered from these guys. They shipped it like lightning, and when I got my stuff, they threw a 50-foot hank of uh, paracord in with it. And I know a 50-foot uh, hank of paracord doesn't seem like a big thing, but you know they, they kind of do that all the time or something similar when you tell them you're from uh, TSP uh, when you order in the notes section. And it's just a little extra. That's what I'm talking about when I say take care of your customers, folks. And that's what uh, Sawtooth Tactical does. Next up today is ready-made resources. I love ready-made resources. I love what those guys are doing over there. Bob Griswold is just a great guy. Really cares about his customers, too. And I'll tell you, one of the things you definitely should do when you visit their site is download their solar catalog. It also has a lot of uh, other electrical uh, system uh, gear in it as well. And they just have, the, the, I mean, the catalog alone is like an education in how solar systems work. So I definitely would download that. Uh, the other thing I would tell you is they have a tremendous selection of 12-volt appliances and different items that run directly on 12VDC. So it's really a cool place for that stuff. But they have everything. Long-term storage food, you name it. I mean, ready-made resources. What do you expect? All the resources for your prepping, ready-made in one place waiting for you. All right, next. I know some of you guys tuned in today because you want to get a shot to win the Soil Cube. Here's what I'm going to do on the Soil Cube. The guy has a video on YouTube. Now, you can go to YouTube and type in Soil Cube, and I think it will be the first one you see, first video, and you'll see this guy making Soil Cubes uh, with the Soil Cube tool. Uh, on YouTube, you can put in notes for your video. You have to click Expand to be able to do that. When you click Expand, you'll get a whole little write-up on the Soil Cube. The code word for today is the last word, the last word, in the notes for that video. If you can't find it on YouTube, don't worry. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, look in the show notes under resources, and I'll have a link straight to that video so you know it's the right one. He's only given out two, and it went crazy last week when I did a contest. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give out to number 20 to respond and number 80 to respond. That should The 80 part should go through most of today. Um, send an email with the soil with the soil cube code word whatever that is that last word in that thing just that in the subject line jack at the survivalpodcast.com that's where you send it to do not use a feedback form facebook any of that crap one word in the subject line in the in the in the uh, body of the email your name your shipping address so I don't have to track you down if you win don't worry I delete all these emails as soon as it's over and I don't really care where you live I just want to be able to get you your prize uh, and the email address you used when you registered for the contest if you have not registered you cannot play you have to register for this contest if you have not done so yet go to the survivalpodcast.com click on listener appreciation contest and go from there if you're hearing this show anytime during the main part of today I think you have a chance to win uh, next up, Gear Shop, Going Strong, lots of cool stuff. The coffee tumbler mugs that were on pre-order, folks, thank you so much for helping us. They should have all shipped by now. They should be on the way to you. You should have got a notice from PayPal saying that your item was shipped. I did a couple days ago. I'm expecting to show up any day. Psyched up about it. I think they're going to be a cool product. As soon as the new ones come in, I'll do a video review of the actual product. Um, so check the Gear Shop out. And those of you, again, who helped us with us, thank you. Uh, next up... Member Support Brigade. I, I'll tell you what, 
It is a great program. It's really helped me a lot that you guys support the show at 20 cents an episode. That's what that's all about. It's also a way that I give back. I, I've said this before. In the beginning, when I started doing this show, within a month, I had people say, hey, can you put a PayPal button on your site? I'll send you donations. You know, when we put the forum together, hey, can we, can we help out the forum? Can we send you a donation? The answer was always no. I refused to take a dime from anybody until I found a way to deliver more value back to you than you gave to me. And that became the member support brigade. Discounts to over 20 vendors. Um, 20 videos by no, you know, that are by me that are available nowhere else, including a 30 minute instructional video on building a three part composting system. Over a hundred dollars worth of free ebooks, and I keep adding to it all the time. Alright? And, uh, it's fifty dollars a year. Today, through the weekend, because I got beat up by some of you, I never get a chance to win when you throw a code out there. Use the code RIFLE. I did that when I did the Rifleman radio show. Um, I did a re, I reactivated the code. The code word is RIFLE. And that'll work through Sunday night until, you know, midnight Sunday, Central Standard Time. You have to use this. So anytime you've listened to you can, $30 for your first year of the MSB. So now you're supporting the show for the first year at what, like 11 cents an episode or something like that? If you think it's worth that, consider joining today. With that, let's go ahead and uh, start the main part of today's call. I did that in five minutes, five minutes and 50 seconds. Hey, not bad, huh? Uh, especially with a contest. Better than last time. One thing I'm going to tell you guys before I take the first call Uh, the contests, whenever I do them, they run long, and I got a lot more people that want to give you guys stuff because they want to support the show and they want to support you. I'm going to put the instructions to the contest this weekend into a YouTube video. I'm going to put that on the listener appreciation, and from now on, when we run a contest, it's going to be like, here's how you find the code word, go. That's going to be it. And we'll shorten that, and anybody that doesn't know how to play the contest will have to watch the video, and you won't have to listen to it again. So I'm trying to shorten the housekeeping segments best I can. All right, but let's go ahead. Let's take that first question and uh, see what we can do to help some of you guys out there. Remember, if you want to hear your question on the air, the number is 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Uh, you condense your question in two minutes. Uh, be specific to what you're asking. Give me as much detail as you need, but no more than is necessary, and there's a good chance you'll hear your call on the air. Hey, Jack. Brennan from uh, Las Vegas here, and I had a question about raised garden beds. Um, what do you think about you know building the borders with um, concrete cinder blocks and how to secure them? Um, I'm actually thinking about building two four-foot by eight-foot cinder block um Raise beds, and I just want to know your thoughts on them. Thanks for everything, Jack. You're awesome. Take care. Peace. That's a great question. It's something I've actually talked about before, but I'm, I'm happy to talk about it again. It, if I didn't have like a buttload of rocks available for free everywhere on my mountain place in Arkansas, as I build the new uh, garden system up there, I might actually have chosen to do this because I think it has... Uh, some tremendous advantages, and let me talk about a few of the advantages, and then I'll talk about how I, I would advise you to implement it and, and anchor them, as you're basically saying. Um, the first thing is they're inexpensive. I think you could build, even if you went too high, and there's no reason to go too high with these, but even if you went too high, you could build a four-foot by eight-foot bed uh, out of cinder blocks, I believe, for less than just about any uh, quality lumber that if you had to purchase it. If you can get it scrap wood or something, obviously, you could do it for less. And unlike wood, which eventually will rot uh, no matter what you use, uh, those cinder blocks will last longer than we will, uh, given a, a, you know, short of any kind of catastrophic event that occurs with them. So it's a permanent, solid structure. Um, the big advantage to me is that Not only do I create a bed that's perfectly designed from a, a you know a, a dimension standpoint, I can build a, a bed in any set of dimensions I want to with these things, but I also increase my growing area because cinder blocks have holes in them. Well, I fill those with dirt. I can plant more stuff in the holes. Now, I don't obviously want to plant anything really high in those holes, but I'll give you an, you might because let's say we took um, the south side of the bed that's going to get the sun. Uh, not the south side, but actually the north side. So you want your tallest stuff on the north side of the bed because as your southern sun hits your bed, the tall stuff in the back gets sun uh, over top of the shorter stuff. So let's say I do my typical thing, four foot by eight foot, and I put a trellis on the back side. Instead of using my back square footage to grow my beans, 
Now I put my beans into the holes. Now, you still want to grow some beans in the bed once in a while for the nitrogen uh, contribution. But that's just one example. I can plant any kind of vining crop on the back side of the bed uh, and let that trellis upward as long as it's not something with a huge root requirement. I wouldn't want to do this with uh, a vining squash because the roots are going to be too confined and they're not going to grow well. But, you know, there's plenty there for a single pole bean plant. So that's one thing you can do. There's also plants that are really beneficial to have in your garden, but you don't want to plant them in your garden. Uh, this would be things like mints, uh, spearmint, peppermint, uh, bee balm, stuff like that. Uh, if you don't confine it, so one thing you could do is plant some of these uh, beneficial insect-attracting plants that are perennial runners that will take over and plant them inside your cinder blocks. So guess what? They can't escape. They can't take over your garden. Isn't that cool? Another thing is they will warm with the sun. So if you live in a cooler climate, uh, you could paint them a darker color. And that will actually allow them to heat the bed faster. Now, you got to be careful with that if uh, you live in a place that is cool in the spring and uh, fall and you need the extra heat, but maybe it would make things too hot uh, in the summer. But you're going to get some help with that because in the cooler parts of the year, the sun's angle is low, so it's going to hit harder on the beds. And when it, in the summer, the angle's high, so you're going to get less of that effect anyway. So there's just a tremendous amount of advantages that you get when you use a building material like this. Permanence uh, and flexibility uh, among them. Now, how would I you know, anchor them? I don't think it needs to be really anchored. One thing I'm going to tell you, though, is you're going to want to create a perfectly level space to fit them into. And uh, once you do that, you're, you're in pretty good shape. You could probably just set them down, and if you were to... Uh, as you make your level space go about an inch below the surface, so that when you set these cinder blocks, they're all, when you when you backfill everything, they have about an inch of dirt on the outside. They're probably not going to go anywhere. If I wanted them anchored, you know, I, I'm going to tell you right now, do not mortar them in place because it's going to be too much work, too much effort for too little return. But I would say you want to make a good uh, level foundation. Do not use, like if we're building a typical rock wall, we might want to use uh, gravel or sand or a combination thereof as a base. Don't do that with these for a raised bed because you're only going to have one high, maybe two at the most. You don't need a lot of structural support there. Um, and you want to allow drainage through them if you're going to plant in them. This is odd, but if you put like a pot... Like a lot of people do is they get a pot and they fill the bottom like two inches with gravel and they fill it with dirt and then they think it's going to have better drainage. Actually, when you go to two different size things, from a small one to a large one like that, a lot of times you actually over time create a block and it doesn't drain as well. So that's why you don't want to do that. Get your level surface, put everything in place. If you got to anchor it, cheapest way you could do it, it was with uh, rebar uh, and you know half inch. You know, or three eighths is, is big enough. It's dirt cheap. You could buy a few sticks of it and a good cutter because cutting it with a hacksaw is a pain in the ass. And, uh, you know, make them so that they'll go about six inches into the dirt when they're flush to the top of your cinder blocks. And then you don't have to do two in each cinder block. You know, put one for each cinder block and put it toward uh, the inside. Uh, so if you looked at the cinder block from the top and you've got your two holes. And uh, not on either outside corner, pick one of the inside edges facing where the actual bed is, not to the outside. And drive those in there like stakes, uh, and that would give you some additional stability. But I do not think that's necessary. If you want to go too high with them, again, I don't think that's necessary. But if you do, um, then what you would do is make sure you kind of overlap them so that each one is kind of staggered. So you've got your row, and your first cinder block, let's say, goes left to right. Uh, from the corner, well, you want to turn your other one so it follows the other wall so that you get a staggering effect. If you go too high, I would go with rebar driven in for stability for that second level. First level, I don't think you have to, but great idea. And again, if I didn't have like so much uh, abundant free building material for my raised beds in Arkansas, it's probably what I would do on my next endeavor. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Brandon in Hearst, Texas. It's my first year starting uh, starting a garden, and I have a couple of different uh, varieties of grapevines going. I was just listening to uh, to your podcast on fall gardening, and it had me thinking, what do I need to do to winterize uh, grapevines? And uh, also started a blueberry plant. So if you could talk on that, I'd greatly appreciate it. Uh, thanks for the show. Keep up the good work, sir. 
Well, here's the good news, uh, Brandon, and thank you for the call, and you know, thank you, man. I, don't thank me. Should, I mean, this is this show is all about you guys. Without you, it wouldn't even exist. But good news on your grapevines and what you have to do for the winter. And you said you're in Hearst, which is you're my neighbor, right? You're to my north by about 25 miles or something like that. Um, you don't have to do a hell of a lot. Uh, you really don't have to do anything. If you lived in a really northern climate, I might be like, well, what variety of grapes do you have? And did you pick something that's kind of out of your region? And do you need to maybe mulch the hell out of the root system to protect it, especially in its first couple of years? But down here with our mild winters, you don't really have to do anything to make sure that grapevine comes back next year. What you do want to do, since this is your first year, is you want to prune it back uh, to where you want to uh, form it's its main uh, canes that you're going to cultivate throughout its lifetime this year. That's the time to do that. So you want to nip that thing back. Hopefully you've got it on some sort of a trellis. Now, it's really hard to explain how to prune a grapevine in its first year in audio. That's It's almost impossible. Uh, but there's plenty of great resources out there online for pruning. And basically you have to decide, do you want to prune your vine so they have kind of one main trunk <clears throat> And two arms, uh, on, you know, and that's it. Or do you want to prune it so you have maybe a two-tier trellis with four arms, which I prefer. A lot of vinters that grow very large um, grape uh, grape systems for uh, wine don't like to go with a four-arm uh, system because they actually want a lower uh, yield because they're worried about bricks and things like that, which is a sugar content. Uh, some do, some don't, depending on what they're trying to accomplish. To me, for the home grower, I like to maximize yield because you're usually dealing with a few vines. Uh, so going with that four, uh, four-arm system is my preference for most varieties of grapes. I'll put a link up to you today for you today on where to go uh, to get some more information on pruning grapevines. But it's really not hard. There's actually a really cool ebook available on my website. It does cost a few bucks, but I'll put a link to that t- today as well. Not my ebook, but it's one that I definitely endorse on growing backyard grapes, both for wine and just for grape production. So, good news, you don't have to do a lot. Your blueberry, again, you don't have to do a lot. You may want to mulch it just for the hell of it, but blueberries are so hardy with cold weather uh, that down here, if anything, the problem might be that it doesn't get cold enough on any given winter. So I wouldn't worry about that. What I would worry about is whether container grown or planted in the ground, blueberries prefer acidic soil. So you want to get a good fertilizer uh, for acid-loving plants. A fertilizer that's specifically made for azaleas would be perfect and easy to find at most big box store nurseries. Mix that up. Make sure you give it a good feed right here in the middle of the summer. It's probably done with its production at this point. I know mine are. Uh, and then right at wintertime, just let it go to sleep. But when you start to see the buds forming, in the spring, and when they look like maybe they're two or three weeks away from opening up, give it a good fertilization again uh, with that good acid, uh, acid-loving acid plant type of fertilizer. That will get you a good yield. If you don't have, you know, if you don't have optimum soil for blueberries, which is hard to keep uh, down here, without that, you generally don't get a very good yield. Even though the plant might do beautiful, it won't produce that much. So, Great questions. We got another one, folks. I think the next one's about gardening, too. But uh, trust me, just the way they came in, the whole show's not going to be about gardening today. Hey, Jack. Long-time listener. Uh, first-time caller. Great show. Love the uh, podcast. My question is, as this summer and fall harvest come into play, if you have three options available to you of storing food, whether that be freezing, dehydrating, or canning, how do you best decide between the three? What types of preparations are better for one method versus another? And as you, as you have this big harvest, how do you choose between all of those? Appreciate your thoughts and certainly enjoy the shows in the past on these subjects individually, but I've never really understood um, sort of the best way, if you have all of them, how to choose between the three. Thanks. Great question, and the short answer is all of them. Uh, And then the long answer is, you know, whichever ones fit your individual needs best at any given time. Let's talk about a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of each, each method mentioned. Dehydration is the most efficient method of food storage for vegetables for long term storage. Compared to canning with a shelf life of about two years, compared to freezing with a shelf life of right around a year to a year and a half, uh, properly dehydrated vegetables can be stored for 15 years, 20 years. It's almost infinite 
what their storage capacity is depending on how um, religious you are about how you store them. You take them and deprive them of you, fully dehydrated properly, uh, good clean stuff you started out with, uh, good quality product that you started out with, uh, deprived of light and oxygen. If you told me you had dehydrated corn that was 30 years old and it lived that way for those 30 years, I'd eat it. You know, I'm not going to guarantee you it's always going to work out, but I think you'd be able to look at it and tell. So I think dehydration has that advantage. It also has an advantage of simplicity. Uh, you have to blanch certain things, which means exposing them to steam or boiling water for a period of time. But once you do that, it's pretty much cut it, throw it on the tray, stick it in the dehydrator, and go. And a lot of things do not even have to be blanched. So one of my first questions is, do I have to blanch it? If I don't have to blanch it, then it's a huge yes for dehydration. So like zucchini and peppers are two things I, I grow a lot of, uh, and I don't have to blanch. So I do a, and tomatoes. So those get onto the dehydrator. The other thing about dehydration is I have a great big nine tray Excalibur, and uh, I can put a ton of stuff in there. But dehydrating one tray or three or five, it's all the same process. Chop it up, throw it on a tray, stick it in there, turn it on about 105 to 110. I dehydrate at very low temperatures to avoid cooking the food and losing any nutrients. And it can sit out there. And if I forget about it for a day and it dehydrates for an extra day, uh, that low temperature doesn't hurt anything. In fact, it might have helped. Take it, toss it into a food-grade paint can or whatever storage method you are. Toss an O2 absorber, smack, done. So big advantages for dehydration. Space takes a lot of food down to a little bitty space. So spatially, really advantageous. Canning has a tendency, though, to do certain vegetables come out better for certain usage. If you want to have a bunch of tomatoes ready to go for making things like spaghetti sauces and chilies, can them. It's just a better option than rehydrating tomatoes and trying to make a sauce out of it. Because basically the sauce is there. You're adding adjuncts at the point that you're opening the can. Green beans are the one thing I'm not real fond of dehydrating. A lot of people like them. I just never find that they really reconstitute right. So when it comes to green beans and large quantities, and that's the other thing about canning. When I can, I want a buttload of stuff. I want to do... Four hours worth of canning, and I want to put a ton of it away, so I want to take you know, maybe that last big harvest of beans, and I'll can those. And they also, uh, to me, are, again, much higher eating quality. So canning is more for large quantities uh, that are going to be used often uh, for uh, things where you want kind of the effect you get from canning. So my two big ones that are left for me are green beans and um, uh, tomatoes. If we ever get our peach production up to a level that, that gives us a big surplus, which I think we'll have this year, we'll probably can't. I love canned peaches. So fruits, a lot of fruits just taste better canned. So that's why I like canning because it's more that pop it open, start eating it, um, and it can be used for you know sweetening desserts or pie fillings and things like that. So that to me is where canning fits in my life now because I also have all three available to me. If I only had canning, I'd can everything, right? But your question is, what if you have all three available to you? now? Your last one is freezing. Freezing to me is a great method of preservation. The food is the closest in taste and texture to fresh out of the three methods. Uh, especially large, you know, you can't dehydrate an entire green bean. You have to cut it up. You know, you can't dehydrate an entire tomato. You got to cut it up. So, one of the things that I really like to do uh, in my freezer with flash freezing are uh, snow peas. Uh, and uh, green beans. Those are two that I, I really like to do as frozen uh, things because I like that fresh quality. Same with broccoli. So I have a simple little steamer. It's uh, I don't remember what it's called, but I got it at Kohl's for like 30 bucks. It's got two baskets. I use that for my blanching. To me, I find it much more convenient than uh, boiling water. And I take those three in particular, snow peas, green beans, and broccoli. I'll blanch them for about two minutes. And then what I like to do with them, and this is an extra step, but it's not hard. I get a couple cookie sheets with wax paper on them. And I spread them out on a single layer, and I set that in the top of my deep chest freezer. And I do that for 20 minutes, maybe. And then I go and I throw them in a Ziploc bag, Ziploc them and roll them up. Why the extra step? Because they freeze on the outside so they don't stick together. So when I open a bag of green beans, and today I want a half a pound of green beans for a bunch of guests coming over, I yank that many out. If I want like 10 to throw in a vegetable medley that I'm making on the grill that has fresh vegetables as well, I can pull 10. They don't stick together. So that's why I do that. So that's my view. Best I can condense down into five minutes. Use the method that's going to give you the product that's best for its intended use. And when all else fails, dehydrate. 
I mean, that's that's really the cool thing about dehydration. And what I love about dehydration is, again, if I go out and I pick 10 peppers today, and I'm going to use four of them or five of them in the next couple days before I pick some more, and I'm going to have four or five that might go bad, chop them up, throw them on a dehydrator, stick them in a coffee, uh, into a container, done. And I can do that all throughout the year, and it's just a little bit of work, and it accumulates. Uh, I can do that with flash freezing. Canning, it would be ridiculous to fire up a canner and do all that work to make one can or two cans of peppers. So that's another big advantage for freezing and dehydration. Small pieces of harvest throughout the year, small surpluses that are accumulated up, and save your freezing and your canning for the end of season, big harvests, or the interim season, big harvests that have way too much surplus. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. It's Shannon up here in the uh, California Bay Area. You want to um, talk about what to do in the case of civil dis or civil unrest? It, it it's looking like fair odds that we're going to have us a riot up here pretty soon in Oakland, and uh, it's not going to be pretty. Um, anyhow, thought it might be a timely, interesting show conversation. Uh, talk to you later. Bye. So, uh, folks, if you're not familiar with what he was talking about, uh, in the Bay Area, there was a Bay Area transport police officer who was on trial for shooting an unarmed uh, black man in one of the public transport areas. And since this call has come, there's been a riot. Isn't that great? By what they call protesters, who I should make collectively the freaking ass clowns of the week. Here's what happened. Uh, I don't know really the specifics of the trial or the case, but... The, the verdict, as I understand it, came down as a manslaughter verdict. So the guy is guilty, but not guilty of murder, guilty of manslaughter, which, of course, has a lesser charge. Uh, of course, people in the area are pissed off because they think the guy should have been you know, hung uh, from the highest tree for what he did, and they want to protest. So they're protesting by smashing windows and stealing stuff. Let me be clear about this type of civil unrest. These are not protesters. They are scum, and if our police had any backbone, if they saw a guy with a sledgehammer smashing a window, they would shoot his ass. And they would shoot his ass on sight. And if they did that, we wouldn't have any riots. Now, I know people are thinking, wow, that's harsh. But I'll tell you what, going out and smashing the window of a storefront of a small business owner who's probably, in this case, probably, you know, God's are, the guy's probably a minority himself. This is what happened in the L.A. Rodney King riots, okay? Doing that does not protest a freaking verdict of a jury or, or a judge, a court system. The people you're victimizing didn't cause the crime. So I just had to get that off my chest. And I do think you should be shot. If nothing else, leg shot, hopefully you'll live. But if we started shooting people when they did this crap, and those of you that think, well, that's that's too harsh, if it was your house, would you shoot them when they were bashing your window in with a sledgehammer? Okay, so if you would, and you probably be like, yeah, I'd shoot. If you somebody started busting into my house, I'd shoot him. That's what you're thinking. Okay, then if you're the store owner and he's busting your store window in with a sledgehammer, do you have a right to shoot him? Yeah. Okay, then why shouldn't the cops shoot him? If it's justified for the homeowner and the shop owner, you know, why not the, the law enforcement? When it comes to the overall question, what do you do? How do you deal with this? In most cases where this type of thing is being built up, you can see it coming. Pay attention to what's going on in your area. Stay the hell out of the types of areas that this stuff goes down when something like this is pending. That's the biggest thing you can do. You seldom see this type of rioting in suburban streets. And the reason is, because even in communist California, you go into a suburban area and start doing this, some portion thereof of homeowners are going to go pull out granddad's old surplus World War II rifle, go up on the roof, and do what I said. Shoot the sons of bitches who are destroying property that really don't give a damn about the verdict they're using as an excuse for uh, illegal activity and for vic you know victimizing people and harming people and harming property. So that's the big one. The second one is... Once this stuff's going on, don't be a hero. Don't think i got to get somewhere and I'm probably going to get... Stay the hell away from it. Let the law enforcement do its job. If you own stuff, you own a store in these areas, I'm sorry, I know some people are going to be really pissed off, but there are worse things you could do than climb up on the roof of your business and defend it. There really are. Um, I would probably leave it to the insurance company, though, and extricate myself. Remember, rule one of survival, survive. And you have so much grief 
that can be caused because you've done just that. I'm not saying it's not the right thing to do. I'm saying it's you know you might need that emergency plan that Mossad Ayub wrote about. Um, about you know you ending up in jail for for being a, a, an armed citizen who follows the law and does what he's supposed to do, especially in California. If somebody does that out there, they'll probably throw them in jail and give them a bigger uh, penalty than they gave this cop that shot this unarmed guy. In these types of civil unrest, the best preparation is to stay away from it, and this is why all the stuff we talk about having extra food, extra money, being able to take some time off of work, and just stay home, because these things always get shut down. They never last that long, and then there's a big mess to be cleaned up, and everybody points fingers and blames everybody, and all the politicians get involved and lie to you from both sides, and they grab a couple people that were part of the riots, and they make examples out of them, and then we all go back to our lives. So, advice in a nutshell, stay the hell away. If we ever have widespread rioting, then it's a different game, but that's not what this type of riot is. This type of riot is very common, It's often seen coming well in advance. They're well-telegraphed punches. You know when they're going to happen. You know when you're going to go down. And you know what the results are going to look like. So just stay out of the way. That's the best advice I could give you. If you're going to tell me, well, Jack, I have to go to work. Well, you know the day that the verdict is coming. It's in the news. You, anybody can take one day and say, can't come in. Worried about what's going on. You want to fire for me for that? Go ahead. Sorry. You want me to work from home? Tell me anything I can do from here, I'll do it, but I gotta take the day off. I don't, I think you should close the operation down and have everybody out of there, but I'm not putting my life at risk unless you're telling me you're gonna take care of my wife when I'm dead. Unless somebody fire you for that, you'll own the company in a week. Alright? In those, and it's the same thing with anything that puts you at risk. When we have occasional snow around here in Dallas, my wife's always like, well they're opening the office, I have to go in. And I'm like, no you don't. You tell them I said no. That's my 1% husband veto power. You're not putting your life at risk. They're not going to fix our truck and they're not going to fix your spine. All right, Even though he is a doctor, he's not a miracle worker. You stay home and if they don't like it, they can ask me. You got to have that attitude for yourself and your family. If you have a spouse that's going to go into these areas, you put your foot down. I don't care if you're the, the woman or the man in the relationship. It doesn't matter. You don't risk your ass for stupid shit like this for a job. You don't do it. You stay home, because if you're not there to take care of them, who's going to do it? So there you go. Best I can do with that. Let's go ahead and uh, take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Mike. I'm a big fan of the Survival Podcast. My question revolves around my me and my wife just found out that we're expecting our first child um, sometime in November. I'm wondering what extra stuff you would uh, consider stocking for a baby, a newborn. Uh, keep up the great work. Thank you for your time. Oh, good question, and it's one of those things I can give you some advice, but since I'm a stepfather and uh, adopted my son when he was seven years old, I never raised a baby. So I only know what I've seen and observed from, you know, my nieces and nephews and, uh, you know, when I was a little kid, my sister's being uh, raised. But I'll tell you, the first thing you want to do is that we say every day, eat what you store and store what you eat. Well, an infant into toddler years is the same rule. Uh, store what they're going to eat. Now, here's the thing. You kind of have a timeline with a baby. They're going to be on formula or breast milk for this long, and then they're going to start eating solid foods, and then they're going to go into a little bit bigger solid. So you kind of know the progression. So it probably makes sense to have you know, a pretty good stockpile of what they need right away before you ever even go to the hospital to deliver. So the initial formula uh, and what have you, I think that's a great idea. And then maybe start storing up a little bit of kind of each phase of, of the first year. It would be reasonable for you to maybe store up 20% of what they're going to need throughout that first year and go heavier on the early stuff. So like the first, you know, form, uh, not the formula, but like the, the mixed cereals and the very uh, uh, well-mixed, uh, you know, easy-to-digest first solid baby foods that you feed. And then as you get into that phase, now migrate up and start stockpiling phase two. But don't stockpile too much because they're going to grow out of it. So just kind of look at that progression. And as a new parent reading about having new children, you'll know more about that than me. But that's my big advice there. Kind of ride that phase and get some of everything you're going to need into kind of a, a rotation pattern. But you know maybe the, uh, the formula you have two months worth. About before they even come home, because you're gonna have more money now than you are once the kid's born, buddy. I'm telling you, it's good. I, I I have learned that much, 
And, um, you know, then how long are they going to need formula after that? And then kind of when they're going to go to stage two, how long will they, I don't even know. You know, I'm calling it stage, I don't even know if it's right to call it stage two, but stage two, first, uh, you know, most uh, easy to digest baby food. What's the average length of time? Maybe store half of that average length of time. And then when they start eating from that stockpile, add to it. That way you just have something for the next stage all the way through. And by the time you enter the stage, you fill it out. Go ahead and buy it all. You're going to buy it anyway. If you start looking for this stuff now, you get to look for sales and specials and things like that. The kids at home, I'm hungry, Daddy. Right? You don't get to look for a special when the kid's crying and hungry. So look for the special. You've got plenty of time to start doing that now. Diapers, I'd say maybe you want to do the same thing, you know. Maybe you want to buy a good stockpile of newborn diapers, but maybe you want to start looking for specials. And when you see a special for those diapers for kiddos when they're about six months of age, buy a pack. As long as you have the space and the finances, buy a bag or two of them. Put them away. Keep them staggered out because you're going to need them. You're going to need lots of them. Uh, you might want to get the stuff you need to do cloth diapering in case we get into some kind of shortage and your stockpile runs out. Um, a lot of people like cloth diapers. I'm a firm believer that the reason that so many fathers change diapers today, ladies, is because we don't have those. That if you if you go with cloth diapering from the beginning, you might save some money, you might call it more natural or whatever, but dad's going to pass the buck a hell of a lot more if he can't just pitch it out. I know I would. I'm just being honest here. Uh, but everything else that your you know your baby needs, obviously if they're born with any, and God forbid this happened, but any type of a medication need, as soon as you know that, start stockpiling that right away. Uh, sometimes we know that in advance of birth, usually we don't, but you know that's that's something else. If you you know you happen to have any kind of a medication need, make sure that's stockpiled. Water. Uh, you are going to be a parent, and you're going to become instantly in touch with the needs of your child. Whatever those needs are, fill them in. That's the best I can do with this. But my big ones would be uh, formula, food, diapers, uh, and things like you know. Make sure you have more than what you think you're going to need on a you know an ongoing basis of things like uh, you know wipes uh, and baby lotion and powder and all that stuff. You know, there's no reason not to stockpile that stuff. But it's not really expensive. And if you start doing it now and stringing it out till the birth and stockpiling some of this stuff. You're going to have less financial stress after the birth, and it'll be easier to adapt to those needs. So there you go. Best I can do. And honest to God, never raised a baby, so I can't really say much more than that. Just some thoughts. Uh, let's take another question. And ladies out there that have raised babies, you can tell me how I did in the comment section. Hi, Jack. Thanks for the show, and thanks for what you do. My name is Joe. I'm from Central Iowa. Just had a uh, quick thought. I was listening to a previous podcast, and I thought I've always been kind of a, a stickler on that you what you give out to people is what you're going to get back. So I've always done the best in my life to make a lot of friends and do people right so that, uh, you know, it comes back around. Well, I was just thinking uh, if, if we were to encounter sort of a national survival situation um, where society as we know it is kind of broken down, there's going to be a lot of people in need. And aside from just having food and, you know, barter items, what are some ideas that you have for um, just skills or things to have on hand to not net, like you would think of now uh, things that you could use to make money, but post uh, end of the world as we know it situation, what are some things that a person should be prepared to do to kind of help out their neighbors so that their neighbors are going to help them back? And I know we talk about the roving hordes and things like that a lot, but, uh, you know, what are some things that we can do uh post-Teotwaki that we could uh, kind of build community and start to be the glue that sticks people back together. Curious to hear what you have to say. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, Joe, first of all, thank you. Thank you for putting some sanity into a world that sometimes is full of lunacy. I can't tell you how many uh, forum threads I've read, not really on our forum, but in other forums and, and blog posts and and certain places where you guys kind of know what I'm talking about, where the whole thing is about everybody's going to kill you in a shit hit the fan, and everybody's going to go nuts, and there'll be mutant cannibals running around, and you know, and not in some sci-fi way that people will start eating each other for real, and uh, there'll be scouting parties out trying to shoot and kill anybody that has anything, and you know, it makes me think of yesterday I had Mike Gazer on. 
And I asked him what he thought, and you know, uh, uh, you know, what does the United States look like with a Dow Jones at 4,000? And his first statement was, well, it doesn't look like I think you guys think it. I don't think he knew what we thought, because he's new to the show, and he's new to the audience, and he's learning what, it, what we're all about. But what his point was is, it's not you know, economic collapse, breakdown, a la Patriots, the novel. That most people will help each other in hard times. And we've seen it, and what Mike mentioned was studies that were done about, like, the concentration camps. And there was some German scientists that thought, once we do this to these people, they'll turn on each other inside the camps. The strong will will, will harm the weak and take from the weak, uh, because we're restricting their food and none, nobody really has what they need. And what they found out was the strongest in the, in the groups took care of each other. I think that what, what made that happen and what would make it happen in America, though, is for that to happen, there has to be a common bond. Now, when you're incarcerated in a situation like that because of your religion, the common bond is obvious. But we have a common bond here called being Americans. And I know there's scum out there, and I know there's people that will do people harm, but I think most of the majority is what keeps the minority in line all the time. It's not just about the rule of law. Now, can we have that breakdown? Like I've said before, the government's done scenarios where they remove everything, and within 48 hours, it's Mad Max. Well, that's if you remove everything. There's no police. There's no military. There's no law enforcement. And people lose hope. That's the big one. When people lose hope, that's when this shit turns into a shit storm. As long as there's hope, people try to hold it together. So that's what I think one of the biggest things that you can work on being able to give to your friends and neighbors in a shit hit the fan is hope. Without hope, and not Barack Obama's bullshit hope, without hope that life can be okay again someday. We can get through this together. Without that, that's when we go into cataclysm. And the more of us that are well prepared to do that, the better. As for what you can teach people how to do, um, the big problem is going to be people that are completely unprepared. So they have nothing to work with, and that's going to be so tough. Uh, so having more than you think you'll need as far as stored food and being able to, you can't feed everybody and you can't let, in a, in a real catastrophe, you can't let it be known that you're a source of food, you know, especially if it's going to be a long-term situation, but you can give a little bit to a few people and help them get through. And you can store some low-cost stuff to do that with, freaking corn in a five-gallon bucket, rice and beans in a five-gallon bucket, a little bit of that. I mean, you can do that dirt cheap, and you can dull some of that out to the people that you're closest to geographically, at least. Uh, that would be good. But teaching people things like knowing where to find edible grow things that grow in your area, teaching people to forage, probably be a great skill. But the skills, I think, are going to be unique to the event, How long is the event going to be there? How much are we going to have to deal with? What kind of help is coming, if any? How long is it going to be before help gets there? Is it the total collapse? Is the dollar now zero? Or is it what Mike and I talked about, a Dow Jones at 4,000? Those are two different worlds. One is a crash and unemployment at 20%. The other one is the whole society is a complete upheaval and gone. And, and, and what skills are going to be valuable are going to be different depending on the disaster. I think the biggest thing, though, that you can be for people around you is inspirational. And, and I, you can't eat inspiration. But a person that has hope, that believes that they can get through it, will find a way. And they will stay somewhat reasonable and humane to their fellow man. You take away hope and people go crazy it's like the person that's wanted for murder that they committed that if they're caught they're going to the electric chair they have no hope so until they're caught they'll commit any crime now the person that is you know being chased for murder that didn't commit it that has the opportunity to prove their innocence that has hope isn't going to go on a crime spree They might, if they think they're going to be convicted unjustly, right, they might flee because they'd rather take the risk of fleeing than the risk of trusting their lives to 12 people too stupid to get out of jury duty that don't know the meaning of the term nullification as well, okay? So you're either dumb if you can't get out or you're irresponsible as a juror if you don't know that your rights are supreme to the courts. We'll talk about jury nullification someday. It's an important thing to know about. So I can understand why a person in that situation where there's enough to bring charges but they didn't do it might flee, but they're not going to go out and kill people because they have hope of clearing their name someday. 
And I think that's the biggest thing that we can do. Now, what you're talking about in, in your original question is called karma. And I don't care what your religious beliefs are, whether you have none or you have uh, uh, you know, very devout beliefs to one area or another. I know that karma is really a concept that's more of an Eastern religion type of uh, concept, a Buddhist type of concept. But I believe in karma. And I believe in karma because I see it. And I see that people that do the most good for others get back huge rewards. It's not always financial, but it's always something. And it always comes back. And the people that live that way, they're the ones that when they die and you go to their funeral, 200 people that you never knew in your life, even though this person was close to you, show up. My wife's mother springs to mind. There were people at her funeral, we had no idea who they were. And they got up and they said wonderful things about her. That lady had a lot of karma going on. You'd say, well, you know, she died. Well, we all die. We all die. But there is karma in this world, and I think that we need to understand it, and we do need to be forces of good. And a lot of these other resources that talk about the need to be armed and protect yourself and understanding how dangerous situations can get, they're right. They're absolutely right. But just understand they're right about a slice, a very small slice in the probability and the reality of the way things would go. It is never going to be the case, because it never has been the case, that everybody is just out for themselves and nobody's helping anybody. Now, the people that talk about it getting that way, and they talk about it all the time, and they're sure it's going to happen, they're the ones you better watch out for. They're the ones that think that way. They're the ones that are likely to act that way the minute that their hope isn't gone, but close to gone. But if you want to know what you can teach people in a shit-hit-the-fan, in an end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it scenario, what you can teach them is, working together, we can get through this. And then you take the situation, and you adapt the skills and the resources to the situation. But you get that done first. That's how you hold a society together. That's how you hold a community together. That's how you hold a neighborhood together. Great question, and thank you so much for thinking that way. Salute of the week from the Survival Podcast to you, man. You deserve it. Thanks a lot. Let's take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Jason. You've mentioned a couple times that you uh, like the ballistics of the 22 Magnum, and uh, I was curious what your thoughts were regarding the 17 HMR, which is essentially a 22 Magnum necked down to a 17 uh, caliber um, bullet. And just thought, you know, if you're aware of that, um, any thoughts you had on that cartridge? The good little varmint round for hunting woodchucks, maybe raccoons, or any of those sorts of things. Short answer is I love the damn thing, and I don't have a good excuse for why I don't own one. I think it's uh, one of the few really revolutionary things to happen in, in the firearms industry in the last 50 years. Uh, everybody necks things up and necks things down, but all they do is make a 30 caliber that's a little bit faster or a little bit more efficient, and Remington's got an Ultra Magnum, and Winchester's got a Super Magnum, and Weatherby's always had their Magnums, and is there really that big a difference between shooting a, you know, a, a Winchester uh, short magnum or a, a Remington magnum or, or anything like that? And the answer is no. You might be able to get one into a short action and shorten the rifle up a little bit, but, you know, God... It's all the same, and it's just ammunition companies and firearm manufacturers trying to convince you you need a new gun. I mean, oh, look, we got Ultra Magnum now. We got Short Action Ultra Magnum. We got Super Duper Magnum. We got to, you know, we'll throw a Marlin after it, and even though Hornady makes it, and put a rubber tip on a freaking 358 Winchester and call it something new, or, you know, a, a, a 308 uh, that we make fit in a lever action. I'm not putting those things down that much. They're cool. But do they really fill something that's not there? Do they really offer a solution to a problem someone has a, a request for? And in most of those cases, I don't think they do. I, I just don't. You know, I think we could have took the 308, just left it as a 308, made a lever gun for 308s, and threw some soft pointed bullets in there. We didn't need a 308 Marlin. We just didn't need to completely change things for that. But it sold better, and now I can say, look at the ballistics or whatever. The 17 Remington HMR, which stands for Hornady Magnum Rimfire, to me is different. Even though it is, we take a 22 caliber uh, round, a 22 Magnum, we neck it down to 17. How's it different? 
How many 17s were available at affordable prices uh, that fit that kind of lower velocity? And it's high velocity compared to a 22, but low velocity compared to something like a 17 Remington. How many things like that existed before the 17 HMR? Zero. Nothing. Uh, off the shelf, absolutely nothing. Some there's some uh, things like the, the 17 Hornet, where people neck the 22 Hornet down as a wildcat. But a rim, I mean, it was it was revolutionary. And then of course they came out with the the, the 17, you know, the 17 Rimfire, which is just the 22 without the uh, without the Magnum case being used. It's a little bit slower, but fit, fit kind of like it's the little brother. And I love both of them. Now there are some limitations. They use a varmint bullet. It's very fragile. And it explodes, and it does a great do- job killing stuff. Uh, and that's cool. And it also does a great job blowing stuff up. So if you said, would you take a 17 HMR and use it for a squirrel rifle, for tree squirrels you're going to eat. No, because without a headshot, I've done massive damage to the body, and I'm probably not going to be able to have much left to eat. What I've seen them do to squirrels hit through the, the rib cage is just, it, it's, it's almost gross. It's like shooting a deer with a 50 cal. And I mean one of the big, you know, military 50 cows. It just blows ribs coming out the end, and it like bloodshots the meat all the way down, even in the back and the hams, and it kind of ruins it. So it's more of a fun gun and a varmint rifle, uh, or shooting animals that are at least large enough that they don't get blown up by it. You know, you mentioned raccoon there. I wouldn't hesitate to use it on animals up to the size of raccoon. Probably my top end limit for it. Uh, it is a very fragile round. Uh, with raccoon headshot, definitely behind the shoulder shot. Uh, absolutely, uh, you get into that, the lung area. I mean, you're talking about an animal. If you compare it to a deer in a deer round, you have, should have no problem there. I do think that even on animals the size of a raccoon, if you hit something like a shoulder blade, there's a, a big chance for that round to fragment and not get deep penetration. So that's kind of its upper limit. But probably one of the coolest guns out there, uh, quiet ammunition they say is expensive, but expensive compared to what, 22 or 22 Magnum, uh, not really expensive compared to something like, let's say, 223. So I, I think there's an awful lot that can be done with it. it. It can't be reloaded, and that's a weakness, but for training and you know training out to 200 yards uh, on any day without a lot of wind, and even with wind, you just have to learn to read the wind, and it'll teach you to do that. Um, awesome. I think for those people that, you know, do varmint shoots like prairie dogs and stuff like that. Yeah, you sneak up within 100, 150 yards, and that thing's so quiet. You can sit there and shoot prairie dogs and ground squirrels. They don't even know they're dying. They'll never hear it over, you know, over across the plains with even a light breeze. And if you get the wind behind you instead of a crosswind, look out, baby, man. You can wipe out some of those things. And I know some people aren't for just killing things to kill things, but when it comes to prairie dogs and uh, some ground squirrels on some of these ranches, they have to be thinned out or they destroy everything. So... That's what I see it as being good for. Cool factor, really high. Hunting factor, I, I prefer a .22 or a .22 Magnum just because of the damage that that fragile round does. What would be interesting to see is if instead of the, the ballistic tip or the hollow point, if they made uh, a, a bullet for that that was a little less expandable. Just a little less. A little bit more controlled expansion to it. Trying to do something basically like make... A, 20, uh, a 17 caliber perform on a squirrel the way a good 30 caliber performs on something like a deer. It probably could be done, but there's probably not that big a market for it, and that's why they probably haven't done it yet. Uh, but it would be interesting. Uh, again, since you can't reload, kind of takes away on some options, but cool round. Good question. We got one more, and we'll wrap it up for the day. Hey, Jack. This is Brian in uh, Arizona. And uh, I was just calling um, about you have mentioned in the past that... Uh, need to get out of our job and find a career or something that you truly enjoy doing, something that you're passionate about. And uh, my question is, how do you find out what that passion is? And uh, I know that may seem kind of like a really uh, uh, basic question, but uh, it's something that's really important to help people find, figure out what it is they need to do and get themselves in a much better place. So thank you very much. Take care. Well, Brian, first of all, it's a great question, and it's why you're batting cleanup today. I, <clears throat> I moved you, actually, to the end of the queue here with this question. And your question came in a while ago, and I apologize for not answering it until now. I was going through some of the older calls today because I didn't solicit anybody in uh, from Facebook or anything like that because I got a late start today, and they want to make it any later. 
And I have to say that I'm glad I found your question and it didn't get lost into the archives of nothingness because it's not a simple question. It's not an easy question. And it's a question that I can only help people try to figure out. I can't tell you what the answer is because obviously my passion and your passion are highly different. It, the old cliche, and there's some merit to it, is you have to ask yourself, if I phoned you up and said, hello, Brian, or whatever your name is, you know, all of you guys that are out there listening, this is Jack Spirico, and I just won a thousand million dollars. I'm now a trillionaire. And because you listen to my show, and because you asked a great question one time, and because I'm an eccentric freak, I'm going to send you a hundred million dollars. A hundred million dollars. Now, and why, why do I say a hundred million? Because a million, you might still have to work. Ten million, you probably don't, but you might have to do some things with it to give yourself everything that you would want. If I give you a hundred million dollars, tomorrow morning you can go out and give away fifty million to every charity you ever wanted to help. Have, you could set up fifty million dollars worth of trust that paid out to charities for the rest of your life and the rest of your kids' lives. Have a fifty million dollar estate that you kept to yourself and virtually, without being stupid, do anything you want for the rest of your life. What would you do if I did that? Get off of I'd rent a limo and go rub it in the face of some kid that I knew in high school that thought I would never become anything. Get off of I would quit my job. Get off of all of the initial things. It's been six months. You've traveled the world on a cruise ship. You've done whatever it is you would initially do. You're sitting in a great, big, beautiful house that's exactly the kind of house you always wanted to have. It's on the exact type of land and the exact place you've always wanted it to be. You wake up, you take a walk, you sit down, and you realize, huh, I have the rest of my life to do whatever I want. My question, what would you do then? Now, if you find that, you've found your passion. What I found to be amazing is that when you when you restrict people from you know the the cruise around the world the the, the temporary things when you say I don't want to hear about that I want you you've done all that you've had your six months to a year of that new lifestyle now you just want something to do when you wake up every day what would you do Some people know man I'd hunt and fish for the rest of my life Great you know do that. But some people are like, I really don't know. If that's you, don't feel bad. It took me a long time to get the answer for myself. Some of the things I'm going to suggest, though, are if something seems interesting to you, take a class on it, take a trip that allows you to do it, go do shit. Do everything that you've ever wanted to do in your life at least once and start doing it now. Make a list. You can't do everything tomorrow, right? So make a list and say, my gut says to do this one first. Go freaking do it. Blow some money once in a while. Let me talk about saving money and staying out of debt. Don't go into debt for this, but you know, if you always dreamed about taking a really long hike and hiking across the country, go find a place that you could take a hike that's going to last two days with a guide so you don't get your ass in trouble. Go do that. You know? If you think you'd like to be a fishing guide, go hire two or three guides in the next three months. Go fishing. Enjoy it. Talk to the guides about what it's like to be a guide. Find out, is it really something that you would want to do? You might find out, I don't want to freaking do this. The worst thing in your life is not, not having a passion, but thinking you know what it is. And thinking you know where it leads you. The, the passion still might be fishing, but being a guide might be terrible for you. The, 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 the tragedy in life is waiting and deferring the passion. So that when you're 50, you take an early retirement, and you finally say, I'm going to go do it, and then you go do it, and you've lived your whole life for it, and I don't want to do this. That sucks. i got to get up at 6 in the morning. i got to clean this fish. i got to deal with this kid crying in my... This isn't what I wanted. And that's just one example. It could be anything like that. you got to go do stuff. you got to go research stuff. you got to pour your heart into things. And don't be afraid if the next six months you're like, I don't really like any of this. Great. That's all stuff you're crossing off the list. Folks, my kid's struggling with this right now. He doesn't know what he really wants for his future. And we're trying to help him, but he's trying to figure it out. But you try. And you keep doing it. And here's what's going to happen. One day you're going to go somewhere or do something or just talk about something. And when you do it, you're going to get what they call the zone effect. It's what happens here when I start talking about hunting, fishing, permaculture, gardening, or passion. Right now, I'm in there. All of a sudden, you're like, 
And that's why I have to throttle myself back. I could go forever. I could talk about this one subject till five o'clock tonight. I got other things I got to get done. I got a new little mini podcast I'll tell you about right at the end. I've got a guy doing an interview with me at one o'clock. I got to shut myself down on this subject and end it for you. That's my passion. You'll have it. You'll be playing tennis. Or you'll be running. Or you'll be hiking. Or you'll be teaching a certain subject. You'll be teaching people something like how to make clay pots. Or how to program a computer. Could be There's no limit to it. But you'll do something and you'll be like, I could do this forever. And you'll get this feeling inside of you that says, I'm getting back while I'm giving right now. That's karma. That's a karma we talked about earlier. You'll feel rewarded before anything material or even immaterial like a thank you comes back. When I get on this microphone every day and I talk to you guys about this stuff, I feel good the entire time. This morning I didn't want to do a show. I got so much going on. So much. I was like, I just don't feel like doing a listener call show today, and I don't know what individual subject, and I don't, maybe I'll just, and I went, no, damn it, you do a show every day, do it. And it felt like work for a second, it scared me. And I started listening to the calls to screen them and, and, and pulling them out, and I got excited, and as soon as I started talking to this microphone, baby, I'm switched on. So passion will not always be something you want to do. I'm passionate about hunting. Right? But 4.30, eh, 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 it's cold outside, and I'm in a warm bed next to my wife. Crap, I don't want to get out of here. I know I planned for this for a week, and I'm finally going to get out there with the bow. I don't want to get up. But you walk outside, the hot coffee hits your lips, you feel that cold air. 30 minutes later, you're up in a tree, everything is completely silent, and you watch the world wake up. And you're like... It's ecstasy for me. So I think the, 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 the you know it's not that's your passion. I don't know if it is or it isn't. But what I'm saying is your passion won't always feel like your passion until you're active in it. Sometimes thinking about doing it will feel good. Sometimes, but right when you have to like commit to it, you'll be like, I don't know if this is really it. Then do that and see. And if you get the feeling, you will know it. And I think most people in their lives, have experienced certain things that they really have passion for, that they really love. And they're afraid to admit what they are because they think that somehow they have to fit in to somebody else's version of success or happiness. That's bullshit. It's being false, and you cannot succeed that way. You'll never find your passion as long as you give a damn what anybody else thinks about it. You want to find your passion, one of the first things you have to be able to do is stand up and say out loud, my name is, insert your name, and anybody that doesn't like it can kiss my ass. And you got to say it loud and proud. And that sounds stupid, and it sounds like something anybody could do. I dare you to do it. Not at your workplace, folks, okay? But you know what I'm saying? There's people that can't do it. First time I told my wife to she says, silly, of course I can do that. I said, do it. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. If you care... What other people think about you outside of who you really are. Now, you will care. I care whether or not you think I I, I care about you. I care whether or not you think I'm, you know, what my motivation is for doing this. I care about this because those are real. But if you think that I'm just a jerk, I don't care. You know, I don't. It doesn't, because that's not the real me, so I don't care about it. Until you get there, it's going to be really hard for you to be authentic to yourself and follow your DNA and find that passion. But it's there, and it's probably always been there. You just have to look for it deeper. So, great question. Thank you for that. I'm glad to wrap up with it today. I mentioned I'm doing a mini podcast now. I I, I said about a week ago, I was thinking about doing something called Five Minutes with Jack about business and about building online businesses. I'm doing that now. It's available at jackspearco.com. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Very, very new. Not quite ready to go yet, but... Go ahead and look at my first two episodes. I'm going to try to tape another episode today and start doing you know, five minutes. It's all in video. It's not always five. It could be four minutes. It could be seven minutes. It'll always be under ten, uh, and it'll always be over four. And it'll be a different subject each day about you know the Internet and business and brand and all that good stuff. So check that out. It's going to be av- It actually already is available in iTunes, but I don't have the link on there yet. You can't find it in iTunes. I'm not sure how it's going to work out. I'm using a service called Mevo. 
M-E-V-I-O, to do my show uh, and upload there. I'm also uploading YouTube. I'm playing with that. You can watch it take shape over the weekend. But by next week, that should be up and running. So those of you that want to build a business and a personal brand, check out that show. That's going to be a completely non-commercial venture. Uh, just something that was so many of you, when I asked that question, the comment section exploded. Yes, yes, yes. Some people said, yes, yes, one million percent yes. So you, this is what I've always told you guys. You give your audience what it asks for. That's what you guys have asked for. Don't worry, it will not take away from this show because I love this show. And I care about this audience. And I want to say once again at the end of a week to every single person out there that takes your time to listen to my show and share it with other people, thank you for allowing me to live my dreams. Hopefully the things that I do here will at some point lead you to your own. This has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Yeah.